Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Before the MLS, before Messi, before Ronaldo, before the Premier League, there was Canalia, Giorgio Canalia, the most prolific goal scorer in the history of American soccer, period. The ultimate goal hanger. He had an unbelievable knack for finding the back of the net and was a major reason why the New York Cosmos of the old NASL, North American Soccer League would routinely draw over 70,000 fans a game at Giant Stadium. Next on Sports Forgotten Heroes, Giorgio Canalia. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to another podcast of Sports Forgotten Heroes. In just a moment, a terrific soccer historian will be joining us, Kartik Krishnayer, and he'll be here to talk about one of the most polarizing individuals in the history of soccer here in the U.S., Giorgio Quinalia. Now, I'm quite sure there are a few of you out there who have heard of number nine for the old New York Cosmos, but there are plenty who haven't. And that's a shame because he was, perhaps, the most feared striker in the history of the sport in America. So, why is he long forgotten when he actually didn't play that long ago? Well, that could be because the NASL, or North American Soccer League, folded up operations after the 1984 season. And we're going to get a little bit into the NASL as well. Of course, the NASL was our major professional soccer league before today's MLS. Teams played in New York, Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland, Dallas, Chicago, and many smaller towns as well, such as Tulsa, Fort Lauderdale, Memphis, and elsewhere. And teams in today's MLS, like Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, and elsewhere, have carried on their NASL legacy by using the same team name as they did back in the days of the NASL. Just a reminder, you can follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes, look for our page on Facebook, or follow us on the web at SportsFH.com. Please drop us an email and let us know how we're doing or who you think we should do a show on or give us a rating on iTunes. Also, don't forget that Sports Forgotten Heroes is sponsored by Audible. With Audible, you get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. What does that mean? Well, when you don't have time to sit and read or you're not listening to Sports Forgotten Heroes, there's great literature out there and terrific voice talent to bring it to you in such a unique way. In fact, there's almost 200,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. 
And Audible is a great way to show your support for Sports Forgotten Heroes. Give it a try free at www.audibletrial.com backslash sportsfh. No obligation. You don't have to pay for a thing. You know, the Cosmos were the team in the NASL. The world's greatest players left their homes to come play in New York at a time when guys like Reggie Jackson and Billy Martin ruled the area. When the Giants and Jets, along with the Mets, Knicks, and Rangers, were down, the Cosmos were it, and leading the way was Giorgio Canaglia. From the time he arrived in 1976 until he retired in 1983, he led the Cosmos to the championship game five times and came away with the win in four of those games. He led the league in scoring five times and once scored seven goals in one game. Overall, he scored 193 goals in his eight seasons, 34 in 1978, and added 49 goals in the playoffs, including an incredible 18 in 1980 in just seven games. Just mind-boggling numbers. And now, here to tell us more about the incredible and sometimes intolerable Giorgio Kinalia is Kartik Krishnaya. Kartik, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am so glad you're back with us. It's great to be back with you, Warren, and this is, uh, is going to be a fun show. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, and, and let's just get right into it. And we'll start with the NASL, the North American Soccer League. And, you know, it really was something back then, especially the Cosmos. I mean, every game that that team played it was an event, and boy, did they have the stars. They had Pele, Franz Beckenbauer, Carlos Alberto, Stevie Hunt, Ricky Davis, so many. And, of course, they had Giorgio Quinalia. And, and why don't we just start with that? Just how big were the Cosmos? Oh, um, off the charts big. All, uh, they were, for a period of time, rivaling the New York Yankees um, in terms of just kind of media attention, um, the, the, the kind of sexiness around uh, the team in town. And they, they were uh, obviously also just the, the cosmopolitan nature of, of the team, the number of international stars they had. And, and this is important for people to realize that, say, well, now, uh, obviously, you've got Real Madrid and Manchester United and Barcelona and whoever else, Manchester City, that have those sorts of squads. In those days, you couldn't assemble those sorts of squads in European domestic leagues. So the Cosmos were really the first kind of eclectic mix of international superstar talent in the world of international mm. uh, of club football. Uh, it was amazing. Hmm. Yeah, I remember going to the game. It, it, it was it was it was like it was an event, and they played at the old Giant Stadium, yep. and almost eighty thousand people would fill they would fill the stands for every game. So in terms of today's MLS, is there any team that can compare as far as popularity and excitement is concerned? Well, I mean, the, 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 the team that I guess would, that people would cite now is Atlanta United uh, who play, were owned by Arthur Blank, who play in Mercedes-Benz stadium. I, uh, and I think there is a lot of excitement around that club, mm-hmm. but um, and they have a, a number of uh, young Latin American stars. But the, the 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 point I would make about them is that they are because they're owned by Arthur Blank and they're playing in Mercedes-Benz Stadium. They're connected to. 
the popularity of the Falcons, right? There's mm-hmm. a, mm-hmm. Uh, and and maybe that's a good thing. I mean, I think that the, 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 that, that 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 that's a great thing for that club. But the Cosmos were an independent entity that at the time were as uh, popular in some respects as the Giants and the Jets, if not more popular. And that, that wasn't necessarily a good era of uh, of New York. Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, tackle football in mm-hmm. New York, uh, American football. So the Cosmos were there at the right time. Um, the thing that I've discovered, because I, I've, I've worked for the uh, for the new NASL as the uh, as the communications director, and we brought the Cosmos back, and the Cosmos have played the last few seasons. And the thing I just didn't realize were how many fans of the Cosmos still were around hmm. who have turned back towards American sports or largely Yankees fans or, or fans of, uh, um, of the New York giants. And then they watch international club football. They'll watch the premier league. They'll be watching Manchester United or Arsenal, but they were disconnected from the American game, including MLS. Uh, but they have this reverence for the cosmos. And, um, so I think a lot of the, um, a lot, a lot of the, 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 roots of fandom because now we know the english premier league in this country is more popular than mm-hmm. soccer mm-hmm. nbc shows those games every week um whereas you have to you have to search and search to find mls games on your channel right. uh, on your tv um the genesis of the premier league being popular in this country was the cosmos and mm. um the thing i would also say is that the cosmos like the dallas cowboys like um the yankees right the yankees are the most obvious example and like maybe the celtics um, in the night at times in, in, in history have been this really hated team mm. that when they went on the road, it drew bigger crowds than you get uh, normally in those cities or those stadiums, just because, um, people went to cheer against the cosmos and more specifically, and I know we're going to get to the subject, Giorgio Canali. <laughs> what about the cosmos style of play, their caliber of play? Could those Cosmo teams compete with the teams that play in the MLS today? Would the Cosmos contend for an MLS Cup? Yeah, they would. I mean, I think the um, the, the 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 one issue would be fitness because people, the level of fitness and the level of uh, um, the regimen of guys being able to play. Uh, for 90 minutes and play at a high pace is, is, is much higher now because of sports science, because of diet. Uh, the, the thing about the Cosmos, part of what made the Cosmos so legendary was the, the amount of partying that went on by the Cosmos players and the <laughs> yeah. celebrity culture around it and going to, uh, um, I, I can't, I, these nightclubs in New York, these famous nightclubs, our listeners probably know, I keep right. rocking out on the names. Club, Studio 54. Studio yeah. 54. Yeah. Right. yeah. In fact, um, uh, Phil Mushnick, the uh, New York, uh, uh, longtime New York Post writer, um, he, he had said once in, in a documentary I watched that uh, he went to cl- Club 54 and they were going to throw him out. He's a newspaper writer. He's like, he's, all he had to say was, I'm with the Cosmos because he was covering the Cosmos beat. <laughs> the place was his canteen. <laughs> Unreal. Why, why do you think players from around the world wanted to come and play for the Cosmos. And we're not just talking any old players. We're talking the greatest players. Yeah, because I think that there was certainly a a, a missionary task of trying to make soccer a popular sport in the United States. And then there was the lifestyle of New York. Um, And there was also just, I think at that time, um, a feeling that, uh, if you could, uh, if you could have success in America, you could have success every anywhere. Um, we didn't have the internet then. We didn't have uh, games being via satellite. 
from 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 all over the world. I mean, even in those days, I remember it would be uh, it would be an arduous task to get any any football soccer matches from abroad, even. Um, the British Open, Wimbledon, those sorts of things were they you would get limited coverage of that because mm-hmm. of um because of, of, of the uh limitations of the time. And um so it, it was this zeal, this missionary task for a lot of the players. And then there was also um the reality that at the time you didn't have uh the European Union, so you didn't have what um has developed due to the European Union's Bosman ruling which allowed essentially free agency um, mm. within the European Union uh, for, for um, soccer players. So if your contract ran out, if your contract runs out now with, uh, let's say you're playing for Manchester City, your contract runs out, Arsenal can sign you on a free or, uh, mm-hmm. or Bayern Munich can sign you for free. Um, in those days, much like the NFL, remember, this was an issue in the NFL until the early 90s. Um, and that's around the time the Bosman ruling came down uh, for soccer in Europe. So around the same time, um, outside of base, Major League Baseball, all of these sports in the world, NFL, NBA, uh, prior to the Larry Bird rule in, NBA, in the NBA, uh, European soccer, you are the property of the club that you, hmm. <laughs> um, you play for. Right. Um, Right. So if your contract expires, they had exclusive rights to renegotiate with you. So ah. you couldn't move to another team in that league. So basically, a lot of guys ended up in the U.S. for that reason. Now, um, there's a there's a, a crazy player market in, in Europe, a market that um, I mean, it's probably a topic for another day, but a, a player market so intoxicated by money and agents fees that I think it'll crash at some point. There's just too much mm. money in, in European soccer. But um at the time, there wasn't. So a lot of players came here. Interesting. So now the million-dollar question. All these great players came here, and it wasn't just to the Cosmos. I mean, you know, they were spread around the entire league. So the million-dollar question, how was it that the NASL could not capitalize on the success of the Cosmos and sustain a major soccer league here? I, I think the uh... – there, there are a couple answers to this question. One is overexpansion. They went into markets that um, they had, some, they had some, a core of some very strong clubs. So the Cosmos were strong. Tampa Bay Rowdies were very strong. Minnesota Kicks were very strong. Uh, uh, they had uh, Seattle, Portland, Vancouver. Those three are now strong in MLS, right? Same, same mm-hmm. Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. has always had a funders for soccer. Fort Lauderdale was a strong club. Uh, Dallas Tornado at times, Atlanta always had strong clubs, but then they went into places like Memphis right. and Hartford and uh, the Boston team, Tulsa. Well, Tulsa was okay. Yeah, they, the they, rough that was actually, yeah. yeah, they actually drew okay, but um, uh, they, they went into a number of markets where they failed pretty quick, quickly. Memphis, uh, Jacksonville, the Colorado, they, they constantly would go into Colorado and fail. Philadelphia, they failed uh, multiple times. Uh, and they were, they were just unable to dis- have the discipline to corral the league and say, okay, let's, let's do this slowly. We have 12 mm-hmm. or 14 solid clubs. We don't need to expand to 24, 28, like the NFL had 28 teams at the time. Um, we don't need to expand to that. The second factor was the U.S. not getting um, – the 1986 World Cup and then going to Mexico instead. Uh, it was at that point that the league kind of just completely lost all momentum. <sighs> the thought was, and of course, the U.S. ended up hosting the World Cup in 1994 and um, is bidding to host it again in 2026. But um, 
Had the World Cup come to the U.S. in 1986, uh, NASL would have gained the momentum it needed. It would still be in existence today. But that was uh, a critical decision by FIFA to go to Mexico instead of the United States. And um, at that point, because um, the U.S. didn't get the World Cup, a lot of the people who were investing in soccer in the U.S. thought, "Okay, this is a dead end and got out. Um, Now, of course, there were some guys like Lamar Hunt, who, of course, owned the Kansas City Chiefs and actually was the inspiration behind the Super Bowl. Um, Lamar Hunt, who owned the Dallas Tornado, who who, uh, he gave up at that point, but he still kept his interest in soccer and MLS's existence today. um, Really, the existence of professional soccer in the United States has a lot to do with Lamar Hunt Hmm. after the NESL folding, deciding, you know what, I'm going to give this another go. and uh, that's why the U.S. Open Cup trophy is called the Lamar. The U.S. Open Cup is now called the Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup in honor of uh, of him. He's he's now seen as I kind I think the the founding father of uh, of uh, American professional soccer, even though a lot of it predated him, but it had collapsed. Oh, interesting. Um, as well as the AFL, as well as the Super Bowl, yeah. as well as the Chiefs, which were the Dallas Texans originally, and interestingly enough, uh, the WTA tennis tour. So. Uh, Mr. Hunt was all over uh, sports. Really interesting. Okay. So now, Giorgio Quinalia. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's, let, let's do it this way. For soccer fans who have never heard of him, and I, I would find that hard to believe, but for soccer fans who have never heard of him, who have forgotten about him, remind us. Who was Giorgio Quinalia and just how great a goal scorer was he? So he was a um, he was an Italian uh, a- Italian Welsh um, striker who uh, was born in Italy, grew up in Wales, started with Swansea, which is a club I think everybody knows, every every soccer fan knows. Um, weren't a big club then, but they were a Welsh club, obviously now in the Premier League, and. Um, he then went back to Italy, was an incredible goal scorer for Lazio, which is one of the two big clubs in mm-hmm. Rome, the capital, um, but was also a, um, you know, he was a colorful character. Colorful. Colorful is yeah. a good word. Yeah, for lack of a better term. So he wore out his welcome at Lazio. Uh, he wore out his welcome with the Italian national team, got kicked off the national team. He had married an American uh, in 1970 when he was playing for Lazio, uh, an American servicewoman, uh, or, 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 or let me uh, let me uh, think back, not an American servicewoman, a daughter of an American serviceman who, who was growing up, who was stationed in, in uh Italy and had grown up in Italy. So he was able to come to the United States. And as uh, Clive Toy, the former commissioner of the NASL and founder of the New York Cosmos said, um, Canalia actually ended up being the easiest big name signing an American club ever made. I mean, you yeah. had to fight to get Pele. They had to fight to get Beckenbauer. Even now, uh, the Galaxy, just in the last uh, here in 2018, had to fight, you know, fight off suitors to get Zlatan. Right, because Giorgio basically went to Clive and said, either I'm going to play for the Cosmos or I'd like to purchase my own team. And he sort of like had to weigh the options of what to do. And he says, you know what? I'll just sign with the Cosmos. Give me a contract. Right, because he he had no other options because I, I, it it may be tough for for younger people to understand this, but in that era, you could not be a... um, 
a, a, a individual, a personality, a colorful character in team sports. So um, the guys who were colorful and acted out in basketball ended up in the ABA, right? They didn't, uh-huh. NBA teams didn't, didn't sign them or didn't encourage the signing of them. The NFL was called the, has been called the no fun league at all. I mean, they, it was always, they, they, they limited self-expression. A lot of soccer clubs were the same way. Uh, Major League Baseball too, although baseball I think had some colorful characters oh, yeah. uh, that they tried to rein in, but um, especially in that era, the 1970s. But uh, Canalia was a guy that that most uh, football clubs, I think there was collusion and cons- conspiring throughout Europe. We're not going to sign this guy. Hmm. We're not going to touch this guy. He, he's a bad egg. So, um, yeah, the the the, the this is why uh, the great Georgie Best, who maybe we'll talk about so- sometime in the future, sure. the great great. Uh, uh, 30 for 30 documentary on. Yep. Um, if you, if you I saw that. like me, yeah, if like you, if like me, you've uh, spent the 499 uh, on <laughs> ESPN plus already, you can probably get it on demand. Cause that's, I guess one perk of ESPN plus is that they're giving you all the 30 for thirties. But if you haven't seen it, recommend the Georgie best one. Georgie best was the same kind of character. That's why he floated around from team to team. And he ended up in the U S with Fort Lauderdale and San Jose as well. Um, but that was the genesis of Canalia. It was the easiest signing they could make because no one in Europe wanted a guy that was this outspoken. Mm. When, when I think of him, I think of the word striker. I mean, I think yeah. there are few, very few, that were as hungry to score goals as he was. What do you think drove him? Take me, if you can, inside his mindset. Was, was he a, a goal hanger? Yeah, he was a poacher, for lack of a better term. He knew how to how to position himself to pick up all the scraps, you know, like a like a vulture <laughs> in, in in the wildlife, right? I mean, he knew where where reflexively where the ball would bounce, where uh, to, to find space, where not to be marked, and he didn't score pretty goals. He scored these just scrappy goals where the ball would bounce around. He scored some pretty goals too, but don't get me wrong, but where the balls would bounce around, ball ball would bounce around in the box. He would be have this un- uncanny sense of positioning to um, uh, to, to put, put it home and slot it home for a goal. He um, he also, I think, had this insatiable desire for attention. Uh-huh. So when he scored a goal, you know, right away, <laughs> stick his hands up, you know, uh, 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 and, and play to the crowd. It was in at Giant Stadium. It was uh, it was playing bedlam. to the crowd. Yeah. It was Bedlam, and then he would even be looking at the director's box. If it were in an opposing team stadium, it would be to taunt the fans. And (laughs) in a lot of cases, um, this is, again, the 1970s and early 1980s, people would throw things on the pitch. They would would try and pelt things at him. Uh, I was at a game as a kid when I was a ball boy at Lockhart Stadium in Fort Lauderdale when Fort Lauderdale played uh, – the Cosmos and Fort Lauderdale had some big stars and then it as George Best had just left. Um, but there were a Gerd Mueller, um, who at the time was the all time leading goal scorer in uh, European champions league competition. has just been surpassed by Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi mm-hmm. in the last few mm-hmm. years. Um, but Canalia was still the attraction. I mean, you have all these legends of world football, but it wasn't a, he was great and he was a great goal scorer, but it was his, demonstrative behavior you know he'd be in the face of the officials anytime um another cosmos player didn't pass the ball to him his hands went out um just he it was just one of those guys and um in in sporting culture uh 
we have more and more of those players now, but um, at the time you had very few in soccer, very few in the right. NFL, very few in, uh, um, in fact, I mean, the guys in the NFL like that all ended up on the Raiders because no other, there was, there seems to be again, the collusion that you don't want to sign these guys. And Al Davis was willing to, but it really, I mean, sports at the time, it was very conservative and doctrinaire and, you know, you behave yourself. Uh, Canalia wasn't like that. I don't think any U S soccer fan had ever seen anything like Canalia before or since. I mean, he was, when it came to scoring goals, this guy was incredible. I mean, twice, Giorgio Canaglia scored as many as seven goals in one game. Think about that. Think about that for a second. Seven goals in one game, and one was in a playoff game against the Tulsa Roughnecks, and I think the other came in an indoor soccer game. But seven goals in one game, how do you do that? Um, I don't know how you do that. I mean, I saw a game um, in 2009 uh, in London where uh, Jermaine Defoe scored five goals for, for Tottenham Hotspur against Wigan. And what it was was that they were like these balls that would rebound off the keeper. Keeper would, would spill the ball and he would be positioned in, in the right position to just knock it in. Um, seven goals is just, uh, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how, how you get enough chances in the game to score seven goals. Yeah, but, sometimes you don't even get seven shots on goal in a game as a team. Yeah, and, 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 and um, he was just, he was also had this uncanny knack. Well, this comes with his personality of getting in the opposition's head. So then he would get more opportunities because there would be these mistakes that the defenders would make or the goalkeeper would make. And um, there was just this fear, this awe. You know, it, it's kind of like guarding Michael Jordan in game six of the Eastern Conference Finals or NBA Finals in, in, in the mid to late 90s. I mean, mm-hmm. you had that same kind of feel if you were a defender or, or goalkeeper dealing with Canalia. And like Jordan, he tended to, in the bigger games, just thrive on uh, – uh, 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 on things it, it, it was um uh, this is why sometimes uh and this is an aside but the, looking at people's scoring average in basketball is misleading because the the great players the lebrons and the and the jordans um and the larry birds tended to they, they tended to score more in important games and they might have scored 12 points in a regular season game mm-hmm. <laughs> in the middle of december canalia was like that canalia would score a few goals and April or May, early in the season, you know, he, 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 he lived life large and, and um, enjoyed all of the culture and, uh, and, and uh, um, lifestyle around New York. So he wouldn't always start the season well, but then when you got to the business end of the season, look out. <laughs> was, was he, what about the rest of his game? Did it lack? Was he only a goal scorer? Could he play defense? What about the rest of his game? Yeah, I, I think this was the frustration that the coaches that, that manage the Cosmos, Eddie Fermani, uh, especially among them, had with Kedalia was that um, you were almost playing a man down defensively, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't track that. I mean, the thing he could do is if you if it was a set piece and the other team had a corner or a free kick, he could he could mark on set pieces because he was big, but he didn't he didn't enjoy it. Yeah, he was a guy that that um um didn't really track back defensively. That's why you, you, you see the Cosmos, and there was also other reasons for it. The Cosmos played a lot of 7-4 games, 6-4, uh, 5-3. Uh, 
the kind of score lines that you don't see much uh, in world football. I mean, you're seeing more like the Liverpool game the other day as we're taping this was 5-2 against Roma. So there are some games like that, but the Cosmos regularly were playing in those sorts of games. And part of it was that uh, Canalia didn't defend. Um, and uh, generally, there would be one or two other guys that w- that wouldn't defend on that team. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he, 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 he was um, just a great goal scorer, didn't play particularly well defensively. But one thing he was able to do when he was feeling in a more team-centric mood was that he was a pretty good passer of the ball, holding the ball up, turning, uh, playing it on to, some, uh, to a teammate that's running into the channels, running into space. Um, he didn't do that all the time because he was, you know, he was <laughs> looking to score himself. But how, he could play a team game when he needed to. How was his footwork? It was it was good for the era. I mean, I think he could hold the ball down. Uh, his first touch was uh, w- was pretty good for that era. It wasn't as good as some of the other Cosmos players. I mean, um, guys like Ricky Davis, who I think was our first really good American player, him mm-hmm. and Terry Vanderbeck, who played for the Tampa Bay Rowdies, um, and maybe Colorado Jr., um, they had, he had a better first touch, Ricky Davis. And I thought that, uh, obviously there were some other attacking players, Carlos Alberto, who played for the Cosmos, Brazilian international was just had a great first touch. Canalia's first touch. Sometimes, sometimes he'd be, um, there'd be a long ball or something played to him where he would have a lead first touch, but generally his footwork was pretty good and his movement was deceptively good because I think, there is this I- image of him as being, and I just went through how he didn't track back and defend well, but he still was able to find pockets of space and would work hard to find those pockets uh, on the attacking end, even though he had the reputation of being kind of just a poacher that uh, feasted on scraps. Uh, mm-hmm. You don't score a goal a game, which is basically what he did in his career, just by feasting on scraps. You've got to have some talent and some movement and some real individual effort and, and, and soccer smarts to do that. Was he fast? Was he quick? Um, I would say he was deceptively quick. Now the, the, the thing is that if you, if you played a long ball, let's say over the shoulder to him and, and he was in a foot race with a defender, the defender would generally win. Okay. Cause then you're, you're having to run over five, 10, 15 yards. Um, with, with both players knowing where the ball is and, and what the target is. But I would say his reaction time and instincts were quicker than any of the defenders. So um, if the defender was caught off guard, even though Canalia wasn't as fast, he wasn't as pacey as the as the guy marking him, he generally gets to the ball first and slotted home. So um, I think he wasn't um, fast or pacey, but his mind was quicker than the defenders, most of the defenders marking him. He could read the game quicker. You know, um, the biggest name in the world at that time when it came to soccer, I think was arguably, or not arguably, Pelé. The Cosmos signed him one year prior to signing Kinalia. So here you had the world's recognized greatest player and quite possibly the world's greatest goal scorer hooking up to play on the same team. The dynamic, the relationship between the two of them must have been it must have been quite something, must have been fragile. How did the team's manager, you mentioned him before, Eddie Fermani, handle the two of them? It must have been quite a challenge. Um <laughs> it was, and, and and I would say that uh I don't think the relationship was very good. I mean Pele was a graceful, 
player um, who, um, who who was um, really good on the ball was an artist. Uh, Canalia was more or less a poacher and was, was colorful and was a lot about himself. Pele played, um, I mean, this sounds very stereotypical and maybe lazy analysis. Pele was more of a team player. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, um, there were many times where Canalia, and this never happened in Brazil. This never happened uh, in, in the season in the cosmos before uh, Canalia arrived. Where there where Canalia had the temerity to tell Pelé, you're in the wrong position. Pass me the ball. Uh, what are you doing? And, um, and, and Canalia even said years later, look, he was a lovely guy off the pitch, but you know, on the field, we had problems because um, I, you, you, you serve me, I'll score goals, <laughs> you know, pass me the ball. Um, and the, I mean, it's just like, uh, if you use a basketball analogy, it's it's it would be like um, the the uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar uh, chastising Magic Johnson, the point guard. You know, Pelé's the number ten, and Kanali is the big guy in the middle um, for not passing the ball to him. You know, why are you shooting? Type of thing. Um, but I, I also I think there were just um, two supersized egos, and what happened with um, the coaches of that era are that the coaches of that era were used to managing players who were very submissive. So um, Eddie Fermani had come from Tampa Bay. He, he had won a title with the Rowdies with Rodney Marsh. who was an equally colorful player. Mm. He's probably the guy that's the equivalent of, uh, of Canale. And I actually saw uh, Marsh last week uh, here in South Florida. He was mm. here for the international champions cup announcement. He lives in Tampa still. Um, but uh, Fermani, I think had a hard time um uh, with, 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 with these guys, uh, uh, managing them. And, and, and before that, uh, the previous managers, all it had, uh, had all, had all had issues with, uh, with, with, uh, dealing with, uh, with Canalia, because I think what, what you would say, um, and not just dealing with Canalia, but dealing with, with the, the, the dressing room of, of the Cosmos players. I mean, even in, uh, um, guys like Stevie Hunt and, and, uh, uh, Beckenbauer when he came and Carlos Alberto, you had some really, um, and uh, Danny Tour and others, some really uh, strong personalities. But it was, um, you know, I, I think that the managers of that era were not used to dealing with multiple um, personalities and having to to man manage as much as uh, as you do today. So that 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 created problems. But there definitely was some tension between um, uh, Pele and Canalia. And and the job that Fermani did, I mean, like you just said, you're coming. They're, they're, these are the best players from around the world. They're not all washed up. It was like an all-star team of the world's best players. How did he he mix and match those guys to play as one cohesive unit if they were ever cohesive, or was it yeah, just I, pure talent that that won for them? Well, he did a better job of molding them. Uh, I guess you could say than Gordon Bradley, who had preceded him. Uh, Gordon Bradley had real problems with Canalia. I mean, couldn't manage Canalia at all. Uh, uh, Fermani, um, Canalia deferred to in some respects um, after he had come from Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay had eliminated New York from the playoffs uh, the previous uh, season, Canalia's first year. So uh, there was a certain degree of respect for for what the Rowdies had done and what Fermani had done with Tampa Bay. So. Um, 
there was he was able to kind of keep a peaceful detente between these factions and um uh, there were some struggles i mean they 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 uh they had a, a real tough time in in the 77 playoffs uh battle against fort lauderdale uh who who actually had the best uh record in the regular season that year and they got past them and then against minnesota they fell behind um and had to come back in the second leg at Giant Stadium and win 4-0, I think, and, and, and to get through. So they had had some struggles before they won the Soccer Bowl. The thing that um, I think, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I mean, I think this, this, this is, there's a certain degree of blasphemy here when you say this to some Cosmos fans, but the team after Pele left in 77, uh, after the end of that 77 season when they won that soccer bowl that I, I just referenced, the team was more cohesive the next year because it mm. was very much Canalia's team, mm-hmm. right? And there was none of this, um, there was none of this uh, sort of issue uh, between between players. He was the uh, the clear leader, even though Beckenbauer was on the team and had won a World Cup, right? Um, and then you had. Um, um, in uh, Danny Tour, a player who had just scored an overhead bicycle kick to win the English League Cup for Manchester City mm-hmm. against Newcastle at Wembley, sign. Uh, but they were all kind of willing to to play by the Canalia rules. And I think there was an established thought process in 1978 and on. If you sign with the Cosmos, you were signing for Canalia's club. Now, prior to that, you were signing for an ambitious club, which Calais played for and you know, this Canalia guy, who, who is he, right? Yeah. Uh, who does he think he is? So um, I, I think as, as time went on, um, he asserted more and more influence within the, 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 the playing squad. And then eventually with the ownership, um, the Warner Brothers uh, uh, owners, uh, Steve, Steve Ross was his name. And then uh, the Erdogans, who were uh, the, the uh, founders of Atlantic Records, and it made millions of dollars off of Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin was uh, the biggest act <laughs> contracted to Atlantic Records. Um, that day, uh, he befriended them and really became a member of the boardroom. By the time it's all said and done, Canalia is sitting there in the same boardroom as the president of Warner Brothers and the president of Atlantic Records. Um, <laughs> it's crazy when you think about it. But he had assumed that much influence. And, I mean, and we've seen... seen um, Historically, that happened with 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 with, with top players. They, uh, I mean, he, I, I'll never forget the story. In some, I think it was a documentary on Red Auerbach I, I watched, where the Celtics players, including you know former future Georgetown legendary coach John Thompson, were complaining to Red Auerbach. They're practicing hard, and Bill Russell is in the stands reading the newspaper. <laughs> and Auerbach says says to whoever I think it was John Thompson that complained, "Once you produce like he does, you have the same person." <laughs> and that was the way it was for Canalia. Did 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 the rest of his teammates get along with him? I mean, the guy was scoring goals and helping them win yeah, games. Yeah, I think they tolerated him. You know, I think it's one of these things where he was so great that they they tolerated him, but there was um, uh, there were certainly some resentments. I mean, it's not. Um, <laughs> It, 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 it's it's a lot like uh, some some of the some of the views of uh, of the of the professional athletes that have been uh, controversial going uh, going forward after that. Did, did people like being in the same uh, locker room as Barry Bonds? No, they didn't. Uh, did like did people like being uh, around uh, 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 some of the other greats of uh, I mean uh, that 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 have that have won championships. In in uh, did they like being in Terrell Owens' locker room? No, but 
they won and they won a lot. So I think mm-hmm. guys tolerated it, but there was a uh, resentment that you had so many players on the Cosmos who were more accomplished than Canalia at the international level because Canalia had been kicked off the Italian national team after the 1974 World Cup. Uh, you had so many guys who, guys like Carlos Alberto who had won World Cups, Franz Beckenbauer. Uh, you had uh, uh, Niskins, uh, who got the two World Cup finals with, with, with the Dutch. He played uh, for the Cosmos. Um, you had all of these guys that were big deals in international football, and they come to New York and they're subservient to a guy who, in, at least outwardly, hadn't accomplished that much mm. outside of this club, but it was his club. And he had the ownership's ear, and as I said, he was even in the boardroom. And his journey to New York, his journey to the NASL, it wasn't a normal journey of a guy saying, you know, that's where I want to go play. He had problems back in Italy. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, he oh. was, uh, I, I believe, uh, terrorist groups threatened him, his family. He had it, yep. uh, he, he had uh, problems with the political parties there. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, Italy, and this is, this, this is probably why, I mean, I keep getting fielding questions from people on, on other topics uh, related to current world football. Why, why has Italy fallen so far off the map? Uh, when compared to their league, compared to the English league or the Spanish league or the German league. And why, why is it that Italy's national team has fallen so far behind uh, those same national teams in Belgium and some of the Brazil, some of the other top national teams in the world. Um, the reality is that there has always been this sort of underlying pressure and corruption around Italian football. Um, and, you know, I don't like to talk about it a lot because it reinforces a lot of the negative stereotypes people have of Italy and of Italians, but it, there is an uh, 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 unseemly underworld to Italian football that there isn't to English football, for instance, that there isn't to the Premier League. And there were corruption, there were threats, there were also um, being involved with Lazio. There were some there were some tax issues that Canalia had to deal with. There were also um, over and over a um, you know a, a, a problem with um, Canalia's. Um, um, it, it, how do I put it? Um, because he had grown up in Wales, there was a, a feeling that he wasn't really Italian, but he mm. was. And um, and then there he had an American wife. Uh, there were um, there were uh, some alleged associations between him and a, a major uh, crime syndicate, a family crime syndicate whose name escapes me right now, but uh, over money laundering and these sorts of things. Um, eventually, because of the political situation in the lean, we're talking about now more recent uh, prior, he passed away in 2012 lived in, in Naples, Florida, actually not far from me, mm-hmm. uh, not far from you. Uh, he couldn't go. He couldn't travel back to Italy the last five or six years of his life because there had been some sort of uh, um, uh, 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 attempt by Italian authorities um, to, uh, um, to, uh, to 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 arrest him and to uh, um, to to possibly because of the corruption of some of these authorities, possibly. Uh, yeah, this is horrible to talk about, but we'd knock him off if he went back to Italy. <laughs> So he never went back to Italy after 2006. Um, he covered that, that summer. He was on the World Cup broadcast for ABC and ESPN. Uh, and Italy won the World Cup in 2006. And he was celebratory and, and argumentative with Alexi Lawless and Eric Winalda and the, the Americans that were on the set. 
Um, but he never returned to Italy after. He never went to Italy to celebrate mm. that World Cup title. It was that year that that all uh, broke down. Now, this had all traced back to his playing career and to the latter stages of his playing career, the, um, the, 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 the alleged associations with, with this uh, syndicate. So um, it's unfortunately a very kind of stereotypical story of, that you hear about Italians and sometimes about Italian Americans because of that. But right. um, I, I, I tend to, and maybe this is just me being um, uh, 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 some cognitive dissonance on my part. I tend to try and just put that stuff to the side and not think about it and think about him as, as a colorful color character he was and the great player he was. Um, I don't know what the truth is in any of that. We might never know the truth, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, he did uh, pass away in 2012 just a few years ago under under this cloud because of uh, of all of that. Do you think do you think his move to the US might have saved his life? Yeah, quite possibly. And and to the point where again, maybe some of this stuff happened a little later, but the last 6 years of his life from the time that 20, 2006 World Cup when Americans probably last saw him prominently on the coverage from ESPN and ABC. Um until he passed away in early 2012. I remember writing the, the press release obituary for, for the new NESL, um, honoring Giorgio Canale. It was uh, March or April. It was right at, very around this time, 2012, so six years ago. From that point on, I mean, he never went back to Italy because he didn't feel safe. Mm. Um, so, yeah, probably did save his life, at least at the end. I mean, he might have got he might have died six years earlier if he had traveled back to Italy. So, mm. uh, and that's when we became aware of it, right? It probably was simmering for, for 10, 15, 20 years before that, if not longer. So we talked about what his personality was like on the field. I mean, it was a strong personality. I, I, I read where, you know, a coach called him uncoachable and he said, that's because I know more than the stupid coaches. Personalities are, are your personality is formed over the course of your childhood, did he have a difficult childhood? And did, did that difficult childhood maybe shape his personality or that's just who he became? Yeah, I think, um, it's because, um, his family all had these, um, financial issues right as he was born after world war ii and the fall of the fascist regime and italy was a basket case as, as i'm sure most of our listeners know right after world war ii um and they all lived in uh i think they had uh, his family of like six or seven people lived in one room uh they moved to cardiff uh, that's why he ended up on swansea his first club was swansea uh, swansea city as i said um or swansea town as it was called then um because he moves to Cardiff at the age of eight because his family is looking for employment and um, they, they end up in the United Kingdom. And so he's raised in uh, Welsh schools and plays for his first club team is Swansea City or Swansea Town. Um, and that is incredibly difficult in an era when everybody else who played for Swansea would have been English or Welsh. Um, and he was Italian. And then it was incredibly different, difficult when he goes back to Italy and is playing uh, for Lazio to be the guy that was educated in Welsh schools and um, speaks English with a Welsh accent. And is probably and is always in his life was as fluent in English as he was in Italian. Um, 
that's that's especially in we've outlined what Italy was like. So um, he had a chip on his shoulder because mm-hmm. of this. And then he comes to the to New York, and yeah, he's deciding and scores all these goals, but he's not Pele, he's not Beckenbauer, he's not Carlos Alberto, he's not Johan Niskins. Um, he's just a guy, like I said earlier, that had um, was a good player in these eyes of these people, but he wasn't a global superstar the way they had been. Um, but at the time in his career, he was better than all those guys, probably. But still, um, he always had this chip on his shoulder, and I think he played with it, and his personality reflected that. Do you think also part of the chip on his shoulder came from the time that he was cut from Swansea? I mean, I think about that. Yeah. And and I sort of liken that to the high school basketball coach who cut Michael Jordan, who said, this guy just doesn't have what it takes. Well, I think Michael Jordan proved he had what it takes. Now, maybe Kinalia's game wasn't as all around as good a game as Jordan had in basketball. But darn it, if this guy couldn't find the back of the net and win games. Yeah, you know, this is this is one of the craziest things. It, it seems like half the great players in whatever sport on this planet have this story where they were cut <laughs> by a youth team or cut by a high school team or cut uh, high school coach or cut by uh, by their first professional team. And, um, you know, I, I, I even think of uh, uh, Wayne Rooney, the great Wayne Rooney, who Liverpool didn't sign when they had him at a tryout. I mean, there are all these sorts of examples of this. But that also fed into this kind of me against the world mentality that Canalia had being cut, being released by Swansea. He only played six league matches for them. Uh, he had come through their youth system. As I said, he, he, he basically grown up in Cardiff after the age of eight. So he was he was Welsh and had come through their youth system, was Welsh enough, uh, but got released. And uh, that, 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 that did uh, um, the. Uh, uh, the, the 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 trick because he was a guy that had actually scored a ton of goals at the at the school level, right? Um, at the primary school level mm-hmm. in Cardiff, which is why Swansea had signed him to their youth academy um, as um, as an apprentice, as they called them in those days. But then uh, um, he uh, he got he got released and um, um, and he um, had to go back to Italy. Because as an Italian, there was compulsory military service. So the other question is, if Canalia had signed with another English club, uh, another British club, another club in, in, in either England or, or Wales, or maybe even in the Scottish League, after he had been released by Swansea, the career, his career might have been completely different. He might never have gotten to the U.S. because he mm-hmm. would have been fine in, in England. Hmm. Interesting. What about his time with Lazio? Tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, this, this is... Um, the kind of controversial, well, the, the whole whole career is controversial, but this is where controversy really began to fall. But he scored, so, he scored a ton of goals for that. Yeah, he led Serie A in goal scoring. He won the Golden Boot one year, um, and uh, they almost, uh, uh, in his second season, won Serie A, um, finishing a point behind Juventus. Um, he led the league in scoring the following year, the 73-74 season, um, and... Um, they won the title. So they, they had finished second the previous year and they won the title. And um, he, uh, he, 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 he was playing uh, incredibly well at the, uh, at, at, at the club level. And he was getting called into the Italian national team. They win the title in 74. He's on the world club squad in 1974. Um, doesn't really get the kind of run out that probably mm. he should have. Um, 
Uh, he, he had been just ignored by the managers. He had to be picked because he had been the leading scorer in the league and they had, Lazio had won the title. Um, but he, um, he got um, subbed out in the first match against Haiti and um, gave a very visceral reaction. And that um, began the cycle where, okay, he was out of the national team and eventually out of, out of uh, Lazio. And um, he was, by the end of his um, uh, time in Lazio, the next season, or, or, or the next two seasons, um, fighting with teammates, fighting with coaches, and uh, continuing to score goals. Uh, not at the rate he had in, in the 73-74 season when there had been a better team around him and he had won the title. But in a, you know, he was uh, continuing to produce. And then keep in mind, this is a player that had been cut from Swansea. This is a player that had come through Serie C, uh, the, the third division uh-huh. uh, in Italy, and had risen, risen to the top and had won the title and led the league in scoring. But once um, there were question marks, he was never um, totally accepted by the fraternity of Italian football as one of them. So um, a- a- as we talked about earlier, the end of the 75-76 season, um, which is the middle of the 1976 um, uh, at ASL season, he comes to New York. And what did he do for the popularity, if anything, for the NASL and soccer oh. here in the United States? I mean, he was the draw, right? He, um, I mean, he was such a draw that Canalia continued on these telecasts of like we I talked about 2006 World Cup. Um, they bring Canalia on just for his color and just because um, everybody knew who he was. It was a, I mean, because. Uh, if you don't follow American soccer, if you're just a general sports fan and you know the, the top soccer stars in, in the world at the time, uh, in 2002, 2006, it would have been guys like Ronaldinho and, and, and uh, uh, Rivaldo and Andrei Shevchenko and guys like that. People knew those guys, mm-hmm. and Raquel May, and obviously Messi and Ronaldo after that. Um, but in um, – uh, they didn't even know you don't really know Alexi Lawless or Eric Winaldo or these American guys who would come on the tele on the television. So they would always trot Canalia out for big events because <laughs> he had that colorful personality and that um, you know almost that 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 Charles Barkley esque feeling from the NBA now or um, you know what what you get with um, uh, when you had at the time John Madden doing NFL mm-hmm. uh, stuff. I, I mean, obviously, I think. Um, there isn't quite an analyst of that, uh, that, that, that nature. No, Dick Vitale with college basketball. That's the best mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- he would be trotted out just because of that. And he had a great radio voice and radio personality and didn't work with Charlie Stilatano, um, who's now working for another Stephen Ross. Stephen Ross being this Stephen Ross being the owner of the Miami Dolphins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Charlie Stilatano is running relevant sports in the International Champions Cup, which, um, it's going to be huge. As I said, I was at the press conference last week and Rodney Marsh was there in Miami and they're bringing uh, 18 of probably 18 of the 20 biggest European clubs to the U S this summer. Um, all of that started because of Canali and the cosmos. I mean, you can't deny the legacy and he continued to be this figure of derision um, and figure of popularity, uh, you know, depending you either loved him or hated him. The, but the point was he would drive interest. So, there were people throughout the country who just went to two NASL games a year, the two times the Cosmos came to mm. town. And uh, if you're in Tulsa or wherever, and um, 
you you went there so you could boo him and hiss at him and maybe throw things at him. That was the way it was. With the cos look, the Cosmos, they're still relative today. This team hasn't played at least the original version of the Cosmos hasn't played in literally decades. Right. Colorful, colorful team. Would they have been the Cosmos without Giorgio Kinalia? No. I mean, they would have been a team that Pelé played for, and yeah, arguably the most famous footballer of all time, uh, a team that Franz Beckenbauer, that Kaiser played for, but he's more associated with Bayern Munich and a German national team. They would have been a club that Carlos Alberto played. No, they wouldn't have been. The same. It wouldn't have had the same effect. Not, I, there's no question in my mind. Without Canalia, they're just a, they're just a team that played in New York that had a bunch of stars for a short period of time. The lore and legend of the Cosmos. Uh, that that continues to this day. I mean, it, it's incredible the questions I get about the Cosmos, even from fans <laughs> in Europe, um, and, and that era has so much to do with him. The color, the uh, pageantry, the the controversy, the attraction. I think came so much from Canali and Canali's personality rubbing off on the whole organization and on the fan base. Yeah, I just don't think that you know we could try to describe it i just don't think that there's really popularity wise color wise just the whole band of cosmos i don't think there's anything in the mls that can compare you you said atlanta's probably as close i just don't think there's anything that can compare to what the cosmos were and yeah. no one in the league can come close to what kinalia was yeah, no, no, that's for sure. Right. I mean, there was no, um, you know, I, I, in, in terms of Atlanta, I talked about kind of fan interest and people who want to see a team play, but it's not, it's not the same thing. Um, it's a different era. It's tough to get that level of player here now right. uh, because of the Bosman ruling in Europe and, and the amount of money, the inflated wages teams in Europe are playing. But no, there's nothing, there's nothing quite like it. Uh, and there hasn't been an MLS. I mean, the Galaxy tried it for a bit. They tried to go Galactico, uh, but it just didn't have. You know, you ha to ha to pull that off, you have to have some sort of figure with the controversial nature of um, uh, of, of Canalia. Look, as great as Messi is, um, he's he doesn't have the personality to have that kind of um, that kind of following and engender those kind of feelings. So Barcelona. I mean, obviously, Neymar kind of is, and that's why he wanted away and went to PSG. There are only so many of those guys mm -hmm. who are great enough, um, are so good, and they can tell you about it and are cocky about it and, and uh, can can infect a club at all levels. And um, Canalia is one of those guys. I mean, I think throughout sports, there are, just, there are only a handful of those guys that are also outspoken and and cocky and uh, – you know, John McEnroe was one, right? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, although McEnroe, that, that's what people say now about tennis. The problem is Federer and Nadal mm -hmm. and 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 uh, Djokovic. They're too nice, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you don't have anyone quite like that uh, um, in golf. Even the, you know the major champions are all these kind of they're choir by voice by comparison. Vanilla. I mean, they're all vanilla, right? Yeah. So th this is this is why. Uh, Canalia to this day remains just this 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 larger than life figure, and he always will be, as far as a lot of American soccer fans are concerned, because you just don't get guys like that. That's why Zlatan, who signed with the Galaxy now, now unfortunately he signed at 36 with the Galaxy, but Zlatan has been such a 
phenomenon in Europe because he has got that same sort of cocky personality. Um, now he's in the city of stars, but unfortunately, uh, he's 36. But again, I mean, he showed that in Italy and in England throughout his and, and Paris, PSG throughout his career. He'd be the closest thing today to Zlatan, uh, to uh, to Canalia. And and the amazing thing about Canalia is it all happened here. What was he a? Uh, you know, we talked about his personality on the field and and the problems and, and and what kind of player he was. Was he a good guy? Yeah, I um, I tend to think he probably was. Um, you don't get a lot of um positive opinions about him from people who who knew him, who played with him, or were. Uh, around the cosmos just because I think there was a certain degree of resentment and that there was all these, these other things going on, but I get the impression that he might've been a kind person and a very, um, um, a very considerate person to those who were around him, including those who uh, were handlers of him, like Pepe Pinton, who eventually ended up owning the cosmos name. Uh, he took care of those who took care of him. What do you think his legacy became in Italy? Ooh, uh, that's a tough one. I mean, I think that there, again, like I said, he couldn't go back there at the end of his life or felt like he didn't feel safe going back there at the end of his life. He, um, I think his legacy in Italy was of this controversial guy that was, was colorful, um, but um, uh, he was uh, selfish, arrogant, um, you know, not a team player. Mm. And that's the way Italians... I mean, the thing about Italian football, and then now they're falling, falling further and further behind the rest of Europe. The thing about Italian football is a very kind of tactical team game that doesn't um, encourage individual player the way Spanish football does, the way football in Latin America does, the way even at times the English game does um, encourage some individual creativity and flair. The Italian game is very regimented tactics you know we're put playing three at the back two wing backs you're in position keep the shape that sort of thing so i almost think if canalia had been spanish or had been uh brazilian or argentine he would have been less controversial but because he was italian um and it's it's a it's something that people view with derision towards italian football they're <laughs> very very regimented it's like playing in um uh, in that system in 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 any sport you know you just you talk, talk about like systems in uh um in let's say american football where uh it's a pro style offense you're going to pound the ball forward and you're going to try and win games 10 3 13 10 mm -hmm. that kind of thing italian football is very much about getting the goal and sitting back and absorbing pressure and winning one nil whereas the game in Italy, england as people see every week in the premier league is about a pace and speed and, and all of these other factors that lead, lead to these four, two and five, three results in that league all the time. So Canalia just didn't fit in there. So his legacy in Italy is one of, of uh, he's looked down upon and seen as arrogant and selfish, but it's also part of their football culture, which is um, which doesn't lend itself to creativity and flair. So I, I have some sympathy for him in that. Would you say you were talking about systems? And one thing I wanted to ask, did the Cosmos develop a system for Kinalia to work in and develop that system while he was there? Or did he have to fit into the Cosmos system? No, I, I think what Eddie Fermani did is, okay, so at first he had to fit into the Cosmos system with Gordon Bradley um, and maybe initially with Fermani. But eventually 
it became a system where he's the number nine. He's sitting in the middle of the pitch, higher up than everybody. You play through him and you play to him. Mm. Um, that wasn't the case in 76 when Pele was there and Gordon Bradley was the manager. That wasn't the case in the early stages of 77. And while Pele was still there, when Denny Kewart came the next year um, and uh, Ricky Davis began to develop, um, you began to get this very, uh, this very regimented, well, it wasn't really regimented, but more or less you played through Canalia uh, and you look for him. You look for balls to him over the shoulder. You, if you're playing, uh, if, if you get a free kick or corner, you're looking for him as the target or you're putting the ball in his direction and you're letting him go find the ball and, and put the ball in the back of the net. So yeah, the system was very much eventually built around him. What do you tell people about Giorgio Canalia when they ask you about him? Yeah, he was controversial. He was fun, but he uh, he was fun to watch. He was controversial, um, and he was worth the price of admission times ten. <laughs> I mean, we just don't have guys. We just don't make guys like him anymore. And in the end, how should we remember Giorgio Quinalia? as the as the greatest goal scorer uh, in American domestic club soccer in the history of, of of the sport in this country, and the guy who really showed uh, the American public how colorful and how much personality you could have as an international soccer player coming to this country. And I think he had so much to do with the growth and popularity of the game uh, today. I mean, I, the, the number of players that began to play youth soccer because they saw Canalia score goals uh, then fueled the youth soccer boom in the late seventies and 1980s that then led to the, to uh, the U S having a good national team until recently for about 20 years and um, qualifying for all these international tournaments. It was on the backs of people seeing uh, there, there was a revisionism that gives Pelé a lot of the credit and, and, and Rodney Marsh and, and some of the names that came to the NASL, but it was Canalia scoring goals. Cause that's what kids want to do when you're, sure. when you're a kid, you're not dreaming of being like, uh, the guy who passes the ball. You're not, you're not dreaming of being John Stockton. You want to be Carl Malone. Right. So um, um, it developed a culture of um, that sort of uh, uh, that sort of thing where guys developed and they wanted to play, play soccer. And eventually they ended up playing defensive positions or midfield positions, but they wanted to play because they saw Canalio score goals and celebrate. After, I mean, his celebrations after goals was part of what <laughs> attracted kids. Um which, again, is something that in sports at that time was looked down upon. You know, you would score a goal and you walk away. Uh, you score a touchdown and you hand the ball to the referee. You score a basket and you just go back on defense, right? That was the way uh, it was. And then you had um, in New York at the time, Reggie Jackson hitting home runs yeah. in 1977 for the Yankees and celebrating those home runs. And then Canalia scoring these goals and then dancing and running to the crowd and playing to the crowd totally different uh, type of sport personality than we had seen in the past. Yeah. I had a question for you and I wasn't sure I was going to ask it, but I'm going to ask it now because you, you referenced it. Did he help the popularity of soccer? Did he help grow soccer here in the United States? Oh, there's no question about that in my mind. It, it, it is not even debatable uh, to me. Now there are people who will debate it with me, but to me, it's not debatable. Um, he was the guy who scored goals. He was the guy who celebrated after goals. He was the guy who made it look fun. Um, and he's the guy who inspired tons of kids to play. Um, and, and, um, and even those who hated the Cosmos would want to play and pick up games when they were six or seven years old and be the guy who marked Canalia, right? So it, 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 um, there's no question. I mean, I, 
again, it seems like blasphemy that to put him on a pedestal above Pelé in some regards. Um, and it's just very politically incorrect. But I, I think in some regards, he was more important than Pelé uh, to growing the game in this country. That's awesome. That's saying a lot. Hey, Kartik, thank you so much for being here on Sports Forgotten Heroes. Like we did the last time, tell people how they can hear you every week. Yeah, so check us out at the world at worldsoccertalk.com. We've got a weekly podcast where we talk more about media these days than soccer. A lot of talk about Fox Sports now and their coming covers of the World Cup and Turner Sports picks up UEFA Champions League next year, including this might be of interest to some of your listeners. Um, Steve Nash, who of course is a, talking about point guards, great basketball point guard. Uh, is going to be actually on Turner's soccer coverage wow. because he comes from a he comes from a soccer family. Everybody else in his family has followed and played professional soccer. His brother is a professional soccer player I work with, actually, Martin Nash. And Steve himself is a massive soccer fan. So um, he's going to be working for Turner Sports. But we cover the media every week, and we obviously talk a little bit of, of soccer and tactics and stuff, too. So worldsoccertalk.com, and I'm at Twitter at KKFLA737. Awesome, Kartik. Thank you again so much for being here, and I can't wait till we do it again next time. Yeah, thank you. When you add it all up, Giorgio Kinalia just might be the greatest goal scorer in the history of soccer. The guy just knew how to put the ball in the net. In a career that started in 1964 for Swansea and ended in 1983 with the Cosmos, and not including national team or indoor games, he scored 321 goals in 525 games, averaging nearly a goal a game for the Cosmos by scoring 193 times in just 213 games. But as good as he was at scoring, as Kartik pointed out, he wasn't so good defending, but playing defense wasn't what he was paid for. I think it would have been really interesting to see how he would have fared in today's MLS. Would his style have been accepted? Not sure, but speed translates from generation to generation, and so does desire. And his desire to be the best goal scorer was undeniable. He turned an entire generation into soccer fans with his exploits on the field. And while there was some shady stuff to what he did off the field back in Italy, here in the U.S., he never got in trouble, and after his untimely death in 2012, his family, led by his wife Connie, who, by the way, is the sister of U.S. Olympic hockey legend Mike Ruzioni, established the Giorgio Canaglia Foundation to help children in need. Giorgio Canaglia, one of a kind. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to explore the career of a past U.S. Open golf champion, a man whose name is rarely brought up despite the fact that he won 16 times on tour, including back-to-back U.S. Open championships, Ralph Gouldall. Thanks again to my guest today, Kartik Krishnayar, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.